The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So here we are in the prologue to John's gospel. What's John trying to accomplish in this whole book? Uh, we find that in chapter 20, verses number 30 and 31. These were written that you might believe that he is the Son of God and that believing you might have life in his name. The point of this book of the Bible is to continue pushing us towards a fully developed understanding of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and what it means for us that we would know that he is the Son of God, that we would believe, and that we would have life in his name through that belief. And so, as we start working from the beginning, John the Evangelist starts us off by a rich, deep, theological treatment of the Son of God. And there is so much packed into these verses. If you are trying to defend Christianity, if you are trying to explain what Christianity teaches, you can hardly do it without turning to this chapter. Because here we see most clearly that Jesus, the Word, is God. And that Jesus is man. And that somehow in God's providence, in God's omnipotence, in a way that we cannot grasp, Jesus is truly God, having the fullness of God in him, he is truly man, having the fullness of humanity in him. Not a mix. He's not half God, half man. He's not sometimes God and sometimes man. He is entirely in one person, the unity of human nature and divine nature. And we will never get to the point on this earth where that makes perfect sense to us. Because we are not God. So we talked about the humanity of the Son of the Word. We talked about the deity of the Word. We talked about what he gives to us, life and light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Yet here we get to this section in verse number 9, and we see what humanity's response to that light is. This could be the best news the world has ever gotten. There is light shining into the earth when we are in darkness, when we cannot make sense of things, when we are confused, when we do not know what we need to know. There is light that comes into the world, and this ought to thrill our souls. Yet, what do we do when the light comes into the world? According to verse number 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Much like the human body may reject an organ transplant. The person with a heart problem, I believe the success rate is something like 70% for heart transplants. person who has this heart problem needs a new heart to live. His very life depends on accepting a new heart. He goes under anesthesia. He lays on that bed. The doctor opens up his chest, takes out the old heart, puts in the new heart. I'm sure there's more details to that. I don't understand the process. He goes through all of this, closes him up, and for the rest of his life, that person needs to take medicine to stop his body from attacking the heart. And even if he does, his body may still reject the heart. 
You see, this heart, which is supposed to give him life, rather than his body embracing it, says, this isn't what I'm used to. And so his body sends all of the immune system to that heart to kill it, just like it would if the body had the flu or a cold. The body looks at that heart and it attacks it. So someone who gets an organ transplant spends the rest of their life every day taking as many as 12 medicines over and over and over again for the rest of their life to suppress their immune system, to stop it from rejecting the heart that actually gives it life. And in the same way, the light comes into the world. What does the world do with it? The life of the word in the world, the only thing which we can rely on, the only thing that can give us hope, and the world rejects that light. This light divides the world in half. There are two responses to the light. We start by describing the incarnation of the light, verse number 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. There's a first maybe red flag as we're reading it. Something that maybe causes us to ask questions would be that word true. The true light. True can mean different things. It can mean true as opposed to false. Like you're writing on a test. you got the true and false section. One statement is true. The other is false. In that sense, is the light true? Yes, absolutely. But it goes even further than that. It is the true light in the sense it is the genuine light. It is the complete light. Almost like we would say true love. Now, true love might be used as opposed to false love, but usually when we say the phrase true love, we're referring to that. This is the real deal. This is all of love. Not I love you like I like cheeseburgers, but I love you like I want to give my life for you. True, deep love. Maybe you do feel that way about cheeseburgers too. But hopefully you love your spouse more than you love burgers. So that true, that sense of true, the true light, Jesus is the true light. He is the fullness of light. He is the verifiable light. It's not just that he's not false, but that he is complete. That true life gives light to everyone. All right, so what does that mean? The true light gives light to everyone. This text has been used to make a case for universalism, the idea that everybody is saved by Christ. Well, that would be imposing something outside of the text onto this. This is the true light to everyone. This means that everyone has witnessed the truth of the light to some extent. For support, we might turn to a text like Romans chapter 1, where Romans chapter 1 puts forth the idea that all creation has received enough and rejected what they have received. Adam and Eve see the truth, they reject it. Adam and Eve's descendants see the truth, they reject it. They did not know everything there was to know about God. They did not know everything there was to know about Jesus. Yet, they rejected the Creator and they went their own way. True light gives light to everyone, but not everyone believes. Everyone receives the light and then responds to the light. The light... The true light is coming into the world. The light is eternal, right? The word was with God. The word was God. It's in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we're talking about the light as something eternal. The light has always existed. It was in the beginning. It wasn't created in the beginning. It already existed in the beginning. The light was the beginner. 
And so the light is eternal. Yet here we get to this point in verse number nine says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. What greater honor could be shown to creation than the creator coming into it? God is outside. He is over. He is the originator of creation. He is holy. He is separate. Yet he comes in. And he doesn't come in when it's good. He comes in after it's bad. God coming into creation in the flesh and the incarnation of Jesus Christ doesn't happen in the garden when the creation is something God can look at and say it's very good. It happens far down the road. Far down the road when Paul can say the creation is groaning and travailing. Happens after Ecclesiastes kind of living. Happens after the, just the painfulness of the human experience. Yet the creator honors his creation by coming into the world. And the incarnation, the eternal light manifests itself in a new way. Rather than merely shining on the world from outside the world, it is shining on the world from within the world. It's the difference between shining a flashlight on something and looking at the light itself. The light itself comes into the world. The light itself becomes a man. The light itself becomes a part of the creation. And what happens when he does that? Mankind rejects him. The world gets divided into two groups. The first group, those who reject the light, verse number 10. He was in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So we're developing this in two times. He's saying basically the same thing, but he's enhancing it between the two. So the first time he says it, he was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So he's using the broader terminology, the world. Now in John, the world is almost always negative. And John, the world is less about the geography of the world and more focused on the world who is opposed to God. Even when you get the parts where it looks a little better, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that's not talking about how great the world is. It's talking about how great God is that he would love that world which is in rebellion against him. And so here we see he comes into the world. He comes into those who are hostile to him. He comes into those who are alienated from God. And rather than the world saying, here's that heart transplant I've been longing for, the Lord, I've never heard of you. I don't know. Who's this guy? It's kind of interesting that the difference between the world, which would include the Gentiles, and his own, which we're about to talk to, which is just the Jews, the Gentiles surrounding Palestine at the time of Christ, they're kind of like, whatever. You know, uh, Pontius Pilate, he doesn't really have a dog in the fight when Jesus comes to him. He just wants the Jews not to be mad at him. And so there's just kind of this, it's not really important. It's been said the most insulting thing you can say to someone who you've met before is it's nice to meet you. It means they just totally, you did not remember them. They did not stick in your head at all. And that's how the world responds to the light. The light comes into the world. I didn't know. I don't know. I don't know who this is. Yet Jesus says we should know. Romans chapter 1 says we should know. He's the creator. He's the one who made the world. Now he's in the world and we don't even recognize him. 
Some of you may have heard of the violinist Joshua Bell. He's a pretty notable, internationally famous violinist. One of the guys who has the several million dollar Stradivarius violins. Just really an extraordinary talent. Does a lot of music for movie soundtracks. Comes to Chicago every once in a while. Plays with the symphony down there. Really well-known violinist if you're in the violinist world. A few years ago, he was just for fun. He went to the subway in Washington, D.C., and he stood on the subway platform and he played his violin for all the people who were traveling. No one knew who he was. They just walked past him. He was in town to play a concert where the cheapest ticket's going to be something like $60, and he's down there and he's playing on the subway. No one even recognizes him. No one knows who he is, and he just stays there. And I think he played for something like an hour. People would stop and listen, but they wouldn't recognize him. In the same way, the creator comes into the world. Jesus is dwelling with man, the most important person ever. The creator, the one in whom all things consist, the one who is before all things. He's walking in Palestine as a man. He's growing up, and people would walk past him on the street. I don't know who that is. Well, that's Joseph's kid, isn't it? Like, they just don't know. They don't recognize who he is. The creator comes into the world, and the world does not know him. Then there are his own people. His own people. He came to his own. They're that first own. It's in the neuter case, so they're the neuter gender, rather. So it's referring to his own things, okay, as his own possession. And his own, then it moves to the masculine gender, his own people did not receive him. And think about that word own. I've read this verse my entire life. I remember memorizing these verses in Awana. Nate was my teacher. I remember, I remember, I like making him feel old every once in a while like that. I remember learning these verses in Awana years and years ago. And I've been saying it my whole life. But have you thought about that word own? He came to his own. I always thought of it as just like, these are his people, like I have my own family, like this is my family as opposed to someone else's family. But own, the word means something more than just my people, it's ownership. He came to his own, he came to the ones who belong to him. This people that he came to, the people, the children of Israel, the Jews, they are his people called by his name. His relationship with them is established by a covenant when God reaches down from his untouchable place in heaven and says, you're mine, you're special, obey me. He delivers them from Egypt. They rebel against him. He delivers them into Canaan. They rebel against him. He delivers them from the Canaanites. They rebel against him. He gives them a king. They rebel against him. He sends them into captivity and then restores them. They rebel against him. And we get to the Pharisees at the time of Jesus from there. This whole process, these are his people. They belong to him. They ought to love him. He has given them everything. What other nation goes from a little tribe of slaves in the mightiest nation on earth, Egypt, and becomes a great nation themselves? That doesn't happen. Israel should have gone extinct over time. At best, they should have just kind of been subsumed into Egypt and become Egyptian. Yet God doesn't let it happen because 400 years before they were in Egypt, God talked to a man named Abraham. said, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's all that distinguishes Israel from the world around them. Yet think back on all the ancient nations, the mightiest nations ever, the Egyptians, 
Modern Egypt bears no resemblance to ancient Egypt. There's no continuity between them. The Persians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Greeks, those empires crumble. Those people groups no longer exist as a distinct people group. Modern-day Greeks are not ancient Greeks. Yet, there's this one little tiny nation. Nation surrounded on all sides by enemies. A nation with a small little country. And they survived. Yet, this is also a nation that for thousands of years, the entirety of Europe was persecuting them, was pushing them down. Then you get to the 20th century, and you have the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, perhaps, in Hitler, and he goes about systematically extinguishing this race. Yet now, Israel is a nation. How does that happen? God did it. God wanted to do it. God made a promise in Abraham, and he fulfilled it, and he continues to fulfill it. And so, when Jesus comes to his own, think about what that means. He comes to the people who he gave everything to, even more so than to the Gentiles who he gave life to. This is a people who he has uniquely blessed. And they don't just not know him. It's not just that they don't recognize him. The Gentiles don't know him. The Gentiles are the ones who just walk by not knowing what they're missing. The Jews, however, do not receive him. They reject him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Those who received so much from him would not receive him in his person. They received great gifts from him, but they would not receive him himself. And this is what the light, the word, comes into. So most of the world is going to fall into that first category. At best, they don't know him. At worst, they reject him. And our world is absolutely filled with those who have done that. Yet, God still faithfully calls. God still faithfully invites. God still saves. Because there's a second category. But, so here's these two. The world doesn't know him. His own people don't receive him. But there's some other group. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege, the authority to become the children of God. And think about that. We like to talk about how we have no rights. Okay, have you heard? That's a very Christianese thing to say. We have no rights. And I get what we're going for there. We're trying to say that God is king. God deserves everything. I have nothing to claim for myself. Yet here it says we do have a right. If we receive Christ in faith, if we believe in the name of the Son of God, then we have the right to become sons of God. It's not humble to think, oh, I don't have a right to become the Son of God. No. When I look at God, he looks at me in Christ, and I can boldly say, I have been united with Christ in faith. God, save me. God, adopt me. God, love me. I have a right. It's not a right I've earned for myself, but it is every bit what I deserve because I am in Christ. I am united with Christ. So when God looks on me, he would be unjust to condemn me if I am in Christ. If God looks on one who has been united with Christ and sends them to hell, God has been unfair because Christ's righteousness is on their account. And so those who receive have the right 
of adoption. The right to become children of God. It's an authority that is given to them. It's not internal. It is not a right that we have in and of ourselves, but it's a right that we have based on the will of God. Not of blood. So this isn't from being Jewish. Okay? This isn't from being born to the right tribe, nor of the will of the flesh. Nothing that we decide to do, nor of the will of man or the will of a husband might be a better translation, but of God. So when it says to those who believe, they have a right, not because they're good enough to believe, but because God's will is in control. Because God's authority, the authority by which we plead for adoption. One of the debates that we have in our house is over this little phrase, they say. Okay, Anna likes to say, well, they say this, they say that. And my response, whenever I hear that phrase is, who says? Who says? A person who just happens to have a Facebook account or a double-blind case study with lots of research and funding behind it? Which one says? Okay, well, Anna has this thing, and I guess it works, so they say it works. But when the kids have an ear infection, she cuts an onion in half and microwaves it and puts it on their ear. And I think that is just nuts. But the kids cry and they stop crying when you put the onion on there. So I don't really complain. Well, I do complain that much, but I don't actually mean it. I just do it because it's the thing we do. But they say, who says? You know, they say that the Nigerian bobsled team is the best one at the Olympics. Who says that? Someone who knows anything about A, Nigeria, or B, bobsledding? Probably not. Yet, we look to authority like that. On the other hand, there are true authorities. You know, there are true authorities that we might ask. We might give someone credentials. You have the letters after your name. That says you have some authority. Or we might say, you know, I've raised 12 kids, and they're all CEOs and faithful in church. That's some authority, right? That's someone that, oh, they might know something. We measure authority. We try and decide what authority is. What authority do we trust? Some people trust the medical establishment. Some people don't trust the medical establishment. We all are trying to gauge the authority. But here, when we start talking about eternal life, when we start talking about adoption, we have the right to be sons of God, but it's not because of our own authority. It's an external authority, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Christian, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you can say you have a right to be God's son, not because of anything in you, but because the will of God is at work. And we can rest confidently in God's will. God's will is unchangeable. It's unquestionable. If we were saved based on our own will, what a terrible situation to be in. Because my will is broken. New Year's resolutions. I will to get in shape. I will to exercise. I will to drink less soda. I will to do this. I will to do that. And how often do we fail on the things that we will to do? Not even talking about moral things. We could go there and we all fail in that area as well. But just practical things. I want to do better at this. Yet we fail because our own wills, our own determinations, our own decisions, they're not worth counting on. We're flawed, we're broken, we're weak. We cannot see the future. We don't know what will happen. 
Yet God's will is not that way. So when we read in this passage, to all, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What joy should fill our hearts. It's not about me. It's not about me. And I'm thankful for that because I know what a mess I am. I'm thankful for that because I know how weak I am. So instead of looking at myself, I look to God. Not of man's will. Not of the flesh. Not of my blood, but of the will of God. And I rest confidently in God's faithfulness rather than in myself. The light of the world comes to earth and divides that world in two. On one side, you have those who reject the light. They reject the light because they just don't want to do what the light says. They don't want to live for someone else. They reject the light because they'd rather use their own wisdom, draw their own conclusions. They reject the light because they find other things more enjoyable. They reject the light because they think they're good enough. Whatever the reason is, one chunk of the world rejects the light that comes into the earth. The other half receives the light in faith, believing that he is the Son of God. Our world doesn't like us drawing that line. The world does not like that we would draw a line that would divide the world like that. That's why every time Larry King interviews a Christian pastor, he always asks the same question. He always asks if they would say that a good Jew would go to hell. He always asks that. Why? Because our world doesn't like dividing the world in half like that. Yet the Gospel of John does it very clearly. You have a choice. Are you going to believe or are you going to reject? The will of God is the one that works in you, but you are responsible for your response to God's working. Will you reject him or will you believe him? The phrase, the wrong side of history, gets tossed around a lot today about whatever position the popular culture has decided is now the new truth. And they say, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be the one that opposed this. You don't want to be the one that opposed that because the world is changing. You're on the wrong side of history. But the greater question is not whether we're on the right or wrong side of history, but whether we're on the right or wrong side of eternity. Because the word, the light, came into the world. The light came to his own. Which response are we going to make? Are we going to believe him or are we going to reject him? It's a simple question, but it divides everything. Everything in the Bible flows, at least in dealing with humanity, everything flows from this. Are you one who believes or are you one who rejects? I pray that everyone here is one who believes. I would urge you, if that is not you, if that does not describe you, that you have not believed, that you take care of that this morning. Talk to someone, talk to me, talk to someone else who's sitting here this morning. Get answers, ask questions, clear things up. You have in front of you two options. The right side and the wrong side of eternity. Faith in Christ or rejection of Christ. Christians, 
May we delight in these verses. We have authority. We have the right to be called the sons of God. What joy that should fill our hearts with. Because we can stand before a holy, righteous, just God and say, I'm already in. Already in. I'm in the family because Christ has done it for me. And I have been united with him in faith. I have trusted in him so that when God looks upon me, he sees his righteousness. Then how do we live based on that? If we understand that this one thing is the only thing that differentiates a child of God from one who is not, the only thing that differentiates one who is a beloved adopted son versus one who is a hated enemy, the only thing that divides the world is our response to Jesus that removes any business we have being proud of our situation in life, any pride we could have in our accomplishments, any pride we could have in our heritage, any pride we can have in anything, because this is the question that matters. Do I stand before God as one who has received, as one who has trusted, as one who has acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God, and because of that I have life? Well, then I have nothing else to boast in. I have nothing else to hang on to. He is worthy of everything. This morning we'll close our time in the Word together by remembering the Word corporately through the Lord's Supper. This is a wonderful picture, a picture so important that God made sure it was a part of the church's observance of him, the church's memory of him. And so this morning, we are visually and sensually recreating this concept. We are receiving, we are taking into our mouths that which represents the body and blood of Christ. We are participating with him in his death observing the communion table. And so, as we gather here this morning, we're just pointing ourselves back to this great question that divides the world. Am I one who receives or am I one who rejects? And having professed that I receive, I now will remind myself regularly, weekly if you're in our church, I will remind myself regularly, this is who I am. I have the right to be a child of God because I have received. I have the right based on the work of another, not based on my own work. So this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, let us remember that the only thing that makes us different is Christ. The only thing that matters is what he has done for us.